Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to foxcitiesmm.com slash Aura. That's A-U-R-A to get started today. You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. Yes. And we're back with another new episode. Yes. So what do you got for us today? Yeah, there's actually going to be a lot of new episodes. I've already written the next one after this. Wow, see, yeah, look at done. this. Look at it's this. It's done. It's it's edited and everything. Uh, so we're good to go, and I've got notes on a dozen more. You know what this tells me? What? Is that you 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 were nervous about not having enough content for this podcast, and you're not at all nervous about not having enough, enough content for Milwaukee Mafia. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that... In hindsight of it all, you probably have enough content for Milwaukee Mafia for twice as long as you do as you think you do. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. So where are we going today? We're gonna go to Sturgeon Bay. Ooh, Sturgeon Bay. Yeah. I, I, have we gone to Sturgeon Bay before? I, I don't, think we, we went to I, Door County one other. Yeah, time. I don't think we've been to Sturgeon Bay. And um and right up front, I'm gonna tell you that I'm violating my own rules for this episode. Why? Is this rel- recent? It's 48 years ago. So I didn't reach the 50-year mark, but... I think that's... I think we can let it slide. Yeah. 48 to 50, not much different. Um, But this is a really good story, so I I wanted to tell it. If you're in the Sturgeon Bay or Green Bay area, probably heard about this story. The rest of us probably didn't. This is a story... Originally, her name is Carol Jean Fillion, born December 4th, 1939... As a child, Carol is above average in intelligence. She played the clarinet in the high school band, generally well-liked, and graduated in 1957. <laughs> so this is this pulled from a newspaper article? Some of this is from newspaper article, yeah. <laughs> that just seems... A lot of this is from actually court record. Mildly but. intelligent, or whatever they say, like, that just seems weird. That's what her, that's what her mother said about her. Oh, I, can't, that, okay. I can't say if that's true. That's what her mom, that's her mom's opinion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Even before graduating high school, Carol married Danny Dean Onst shortly after she turned 18. The marriage lasted for about a year when Danny filed for divorce. He claimed that she did not respect her marriage vows and subjected him to extreme and repeated cruelty. He said that on numerous occasions she would say she was no, that she no longer loved him and was openly going on dates with other men. Carol subjected him to constant bickering and nagging, and he was not able to alleviate her nagging. A judge signed off on the divorce. Boom, boom. And then things got hairy. Nope. <laughs> nope. March 1960. Carol marries a second time to a man named Jock Clark. And Jock is J-O-C-K. That is his legal name. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> The couple has one son. This marriage lasted around four years when Jock filed for divorce. He said Carol had shown him extreme cruelty. 
She had a domineering disposition, constantly insisted upon having her own way, and if interfered with, became abusive. Carol allegedly showed him no love and constantly nagged and criticized him without just cause. Carol called her husband vile, obscene, and vulgar names. She would leave for long periods of time without explanation and did not regularly feed him his meals. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably a big deal, though, but 48 years ago or yeah, whatever. So. <laughs> yeah. Carol contested the divorce. She said that the meals were not always regular because Jock came home at a regular time, at irregular times. times. She denied being gone for long periods, denied associating with other men, and denied hanging out at a local tavern, besides on one occasion when she had to work until 2.30 a.m. The judge found in favor of Jock. The divorce was granted. Jock was given complete custody of their son, and Carol was even denied alimony. She was, however, given the house. She does. She seems like she might be a difficult woman to be married to. Yes, although already at this point, like I'm not sure how much of this is her and how much it's not. Like judges keep finding against her for the first two. The complaints are like she's nagging and doesn't bring you dinner like that's (laughs) that doesn't sound like but they do say like emotional abuse and and stuff yeah there's strong hints of her running around with other men which is not that's not cool some of this i'm like really like you're the divorce is because you have a cranky wife okay (laughs) shortly after this divorce carol ran into ronald clark her ex-husband's brother Carol had a bruised and swollen face and arm. She said Jock had had done that to her during a custody dispute. Ronald believed that his brother had likely beat Carol during their marriage as well. Interesting. There's another side to that story that was there. Carol was married for a third time in September 1966 to Richard Pierce, a career member of the Coast Guard. Because of his job, the couple moved frequently. In the early 1970s, they were in Sicklerville, New Jersey. While in Sicklerville, neighbors in the trailer park thought that Richard was beating Carol. One neighbor, an x-ray technician, said the bruises on Carol did not look like an accident based on her medical training. Carol did tell one of her neighbors that she thought Richard was going to kill her, and she considered hiding someplace that nobody would ever find her. In July 1973, Richard was assigned to the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Mesquite, which was based out of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. The couple moved again, taking up residence at the Sunrise Shores Trailer Park in Sturgeon Bay. Okay. Renee and Chris Zimmer, another Coast Guard couple, thought the Pierces bickered more than the average couple and were often volatile and throwing verbal barbs at each other. Friend Richard Huftel once visited their home, and they were in a heated argument that lasted until 4 (laughs) a.m. When the couple finally stopped arguing and went to bed, he snuck out. Former shipmate Stefan Vankus thought Carol was the suspicious type and did not trust her husband. Douglas Lundberg, an executive officer on the ship, said Carol was the kind of woman who would drive some guys nuts. 
David Reed, another shipmate, found Carol to be aggressive, and Richard always acted wimpy around her. <laughs> Brian Fillion, Carol's brother, went to visit her for Christmas 1973. He had not seen her for a few years. When Richard's ship came in, Brian picked him up, and they went last-minute Christmas shopping. Back at the house, Carol interrogated Richard about where the ship went, not believing him of its schedule and ports. Brian was impressed with how calm Richard remained during the questioning, even though he had not slept well for the last few days. In late 1974, ship captain Alan Rosebrook lost his wife after she fell down the basement steps. Other people on the ship found this suspicious. Richard told engineering officer Kent Kramer, that was a pretty good deal. Rosebrook got rid of his wife, and he got away with it. <laughs> oh, no, so he's going to do it, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> the classic fall down the steps. <laughs> uh, for those of you who haven't uh, watched The Staircase, fantastic documentary series. Not about this, but... <laughs> From 1973 to 1975, Carol was in regular contact with her mother through letters and phone calls. The letters would be signed from both her and Richard. Carol was proud of the progress being made on their house in Sheboygan, Michigan. I don't know if that's how you say it. Sheboygan, Sheboygan, I don't know. Um, It's Sheboygan, but with a C. (laughs) Where they were going to live when Richard was discharged. Carol even sold her car to build a garage there. On May 7th, 1975, Carol wrote that she was anxious to move into her new home. The moving day was now set at September 22nd, 1975, just a few months away. A May 25th letter spoke of Carol saving up money to buy a $100 Coast Guard ring for Richard for his retirement and how she had to be so sneaky because it couldn't show up on their banking statements. (laughs) Around July 1975, Richard moved the couple's valuables to a safety deposit box in Michigan. Birth certificates, military papers, and even a $1,200 ring that Carol had got from her ex-husband, Jock Clark. A letter on August 12th invited Carol's mother to the new house, but warned her that the plumbing wasn't quite ready yet. She noted that they were not financially well off and would have to drive the long way to Michigan because the ferry was too expensive. The letter said they had also adopted a kitten. <laughs> I And I don't know what the ferry cost in those days, that it was more expensive to take the ferry than drive up through Upper Michigan, but... Well, you know what? Hmm. Gas was probably virtually free back then, <laughs> if you think about I it. I suppose. So... I was going to say, I mean, I don't think the ferry cost that much, but... It's like $100 now, would it? Last time I looked, which was years ago, so it's probably twice that now. Okay. September 2nd. The Mesquite left Sturgeon Bay to assist a barge in Detroit. Soon after leaving, the orders were changed, and they moved to Chicago. While ashore at Chicago, Richard called Carol and said that he was in Detroit. His shipmate asked why he lied about where he was and was told, She wouldn't believe me anyway if I said I was in Chicago. (laughs) The ship returned to Sturgeon Bay on September 5th at 6.15 p.m., and the crew was given liberty, which I, I maybe you know what that means, but I take it to mean they can just go about town and Yeah, whatever. yeah, that's exactly what that means. Okay. September 6, 1975. 
Richard went to the ship and told his crewmates that Carol had run off and emptied their savings account of $20,000. A few days later, a mutual friend visited the Puritz home to see how Richard was doing. Carol's things were still in the house. Her makeup, her record collection, her cat, and even her purse. There was no sign that she had gone anywhere. Richard had his retirement party aboard the ship on September 19th. Both his mother and Carol's mother were there at the party. (laughs) On September 22nd, he moved to the new property in Michigan as had been planned. October 14th, Carol's mother called the Sturgeon Bay police. She said she had not heard from her daughter in months. She believed that Richard had already reported her missing, since they had talked at the retirement party. Mm -hmm. But the police said this is the first they'd heard about it. (laughs) Really? (laughs) October 18th, Richard Pierce reported that his wife ran away from their trailer on September 8th and had taken $1,000 that had been set aside for the purpose of moving back to Michigan after he was discharged from the Coast Guard. Wait, but didn't... She he tell a friend or something that they she had emptied out like twenty thousand dollars from a bank account yes. previously. Yes. Okay. So now he's changed it from twenty thousand to one thousand and from September sixth to September eighth. Okay. Why did it take him a month to file a missing persons report? Hmm. The police wrote in their report that they thought that Richard was more upset about the thousand dollars that was missing than his missing wife. <laughs> Police brought out cadaver dogs and searched the Sturgeon Bay property, but didn't find anything. Police spoke to neighbors and members of the ship's crew. Every single one of them said Richard did not seem upset by his wife's disappearance, and he had continued on as if nothing had happened at all. Years go by. January 20th, 1976. Brian Fillion, this is three years later, I think. Maybe just a year later. Brian Fillion went to Richard's house and asked him point blank if he knew where Carol was. Richard looked sheepish, but said that he did not know. Another year goes by, November 22nd, 1977. Richard was granted a divorce from Carol. In exchange for giving her $1, if she ever showed up to claim it, he was given sole ownership of their property. No, it's a pretty okay. good, it's a pretty good divorce settlement there. June nineteen seventy eight, Richard was married. This was his third time being married to Rose Marlene Box, who he had met a month after Carol's disappearance. Following the marriage, Rose moved in. Strangely enough, even though he had moved from Sturgeon Bay to Michigan, Richard still had several of Carol's undergarments in his possession. <laughs> He told Rose that Carol had run off with a boyfriend that she mentioned Sturgeon Bay. She wouldn't be coming back. A few more years go by. December 9th, 1982. Richard was brought to Sturgeon Bay and interviewed by the police chief. Richard said Carol and him had coffee on September 8th, 1975. And then he went to work. When he returned, she was gone and had taken her summer clothes as well as $1,000 that he kept in an envelope. The bills in the envelope were ones, fives, and tens, but nothing larger. The chief did some math on this and figured out that if you had (laughs) $1,000 in an envelope and nothing bigger than tens, 
you would require $150 bills, 150 bills to do it, which would be a lot of money to fit in a normal-sized normal envelope. envelope. <laughs> Richard had found Carol's wedding ring in a drawer and gave it to his daughter from a previous marriage. Richard claimed to call the Door County and Green Bay hospitals looking for Carol using a local phone book, but police determined that the Green Bay hospital was not listed in the Sturgeon Bay phone book. So he probably couldn't have done that. <laughs> Richard said he was never violent with Carol at any point, which the police doubted based on what they'd been told from other people. The police repeatedly referred to Carol as dead while interviewing him, and each time Richard said, I don't think she's dead. <laughs> 1989, this is now like 15 years wow, later. Wow, man, this thing is really going on, huh? Yeah. Carol's mother dies. So Carol's mother never knows what happened. 1995, about 20 years later, Richard was in Sturgeon Bay for a Coast Guard reunion. When a former shipmate asked about Carol, Richard said nothing at first, but then just stared at him with a shit-eating grin. (laughs) (laughs) That that is from the court records. That's from the court records. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So is that like a uh, direct, what would it say? Like, did somebody, is that what the guy told the court? Yeah. And that, so that's why it's written like that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A few more years go by. It's the second half of 2001. So this is like 25 years oh, later. Jesus. Richard and Chad Box, who is his wife's, new wife's grandson, were moving furniture. And Chad said that his grandmother wanted the furniture moved in a certain way. Richard said, well, I don't care what she says. The furniture is going to go where I say it's going to go. And that's why I got rid of my last wife. (laughs) (laughs) Not good. Not a a good move there. (laughs) The grandson found that to be a very strange thing to say. few more years go by 2008 this is insane that it's dragging out this long investigators search pierce's property in michigan at this point they believe that carol's body was probably hidden somewhere on the michigan property maybe was moved at some point they couldn't find quite any evidence that it was there. So they're suggesting they think she did move with him, and once they mo- he moved, he killed her? Or it, are they, they saying... They think that he killed her in Sheboygan and brought the body with him to Michigan. Michigan? Really? Yeah. Okay. That's what their claim is. September 21st, 2018. Uh, so this is like 35. I don't even know the math anymore. It's a long time. The Wisconsin cold case review team looked at the cold case and concluded that they thought that there was enough evidence to show that Richard Pierce was the one who was most likely to gain from Carol having disappeared. They referred this to the Wisconsin Department of Justice, and on October 11, 2018, the Sturgeon Bay police arrested Richard Pierce for the murder of Carol. 43 years after. But at this point in time, they're arresting him. They still don't have a body or anything, right? Correct. Okay. 
So 43 years after her disappearance, law enforcement goes to Michigan, arrests him, brings him back to Sturgeon Bay. The state attorney general releases a press statement. Three generations of law enforcement have worked to close this case. Today, we were able to make major progress in finding the answer to Carol's disappearance, but many of Carol's family and friends are no longer alive. Justice must still be provided for, and those loved ones who still wonder what happened so many years ago. After over four decades of investigation, Sturgeon Bay recognizes the Fillion family has endured 43 years of anguish for the loss of their sister, While the pursuit of justice is often difficult, and in this case, long overdue, investigators never gave up and hoped to bring to light answers to family members on Carol's behalf. All right. So it goes to trial. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors presented evidence for six days. A special agent with the Wisconsin Department of Justice talks about record searches that he did. He said, I searched for records everywhere. And in checking all those records, Carol does not exist in society. She's dead. She's gone. She does not exist. Mm-hmm. He basically says it's not possible for someone to go 43 years and not leave some kind of a credit Reprimand report or something. Yeah. Some trace that they were there. Yeah. He goes, you can do a pretty good job of disappearing, but not that good. A deputy with the uh, county sheriff's office talks about a search of Pierce's Michigan home. Investigators searched a crawl space in 2018 and previously in 2008. There was a cut in the concrete in 2008 that was filled in with dirt and rock and earth. During the search in 2018, the cut was there, but it was no longer filled in. While videotaping, I was able to observe a void that went back underneath the cement floor of the crawl space. The officer testified. This is where they think the body was hidden for a while, in a crawl space under the home. Dog handler Alyssa Palmer testified about the search of the Michigan home in 2018. Her special cadaver dog was used in the search. The dog indicated the presence of human remains in the residence in six different locations, but they didn't actually find any remains. The defense declined to call any witnesses, and Pierce did not take the stand. In their closing argument, the prosecution told the jury Carol's dead. They denied the theory that she took off and started a new life without telling anyone. He said there's there's no record of her existing anywhere. And at that point, communication with anybody had ended 17,000 days ago. Which is the same as saying, you know, the 40-some years ago, but it sounds pretty dramatic. Pretty powerful. Yeah. It's beyond a reasonable doubt, given everything we've already discussed at this point. Carol's dead. We know there was violence in the Pierce home. She disappeared suddenly. She left all kinds of personal things that can't explain why she wouldn't take them. The defendant was the last person to see her alive, and he gave multiple stories about what happened to her. The defense attorney argued that without a body, the jury could not convict her client. You cannot find my client guilty of these crimes. There literally is no body, and there literally is no proof of human remains. After nine and a half hours of deliberation, the jury returned with their verdict. What did they come up with? Well, it's my opinion that it should be not guilty. Okay. So what, you think that's what they came up with? Yeah. 
They returned a verdict of guilty. Really? Guilty of first-degree murder. Pierce was brought to the jail, and at sentencing, he got a life sentence, because what you get in Wisconsin. He was already 86 years old at this time. You know, life sentence isn't that long. But this was just a couple of years ago, you know, so he's he is still alive. But he is still alive. He is still oh. alive, but probably not a whole lot longer. And do you, could you see, are there appeals going on for this or anything like that? This is how recent this case is. He was sentenced in August 2022. Holy cow. The appeals probably wouldn't even go to court yet. Really? As we're, well, maybe they started. As of right now, that would still be an ongoing thing. I was going to say that I had, I, had, I had a hot take, but it sounds like your hot take and my hot take are the same take. What's that? Well, here's the thing. Like, the way that I understand it, based on the newspaper accounts and the court documents and stuff like that, I am dang near 100% sure that he killed his wife. I would lean that way, but I also do feel like, based on what everything you just read, there is zero evidence of that. Yeah. I mean, there is nothing. <laughs> and that's and that's exactly it. Even though I would say I would be shocked to find out that he didn't kill his wife, I still would not have convicted him on it. Yeah, because I don't know what you convict him on. Yeah. I mean, just it's all circumstantial evidence that points him as being the most likely person to do it. I don't know, maybe I don't understand the judicial system, but doesn't sound like a convictable way to get a person. Well, apparently it was, yeah, <laughs> because they got him. But, but yeah, that's a, that's the thing to me is again, like I'm fairly confident he did it. I can't imagine who any other suspect would be. As anybody who's listened to any of our podcasts knows, I'm very strict on like the facts mm-hmm. and. Here, the facts definitely hint at him being guilty, but nothing in here. They didn't find a murder weapon. They didn't find a body. The best they've got is knowing that they were abusive towards each other, and he made some highly inappropriate comments to people. That, to me, is not automatically guilty. I mean, let's say his wife did run off with somebody. who I I do not believe that happened, but let's say that she did. And then 10 years later, he made an offhand remark to somebody like, yeah, I killed her. Highly inappropriate thing to joke about. Right. But it doesn't mean he wouldn't do it. Right, exactly. And and just because of these offhand comments, too, I, I really, like, I don't take what somebody says. If somebody says something, and then there's, like, evidence to also back that up, to me, that's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. But just somebody saying somebody said something, people say dumb things all the right. time. Right. You know, like like that is not enough evidence to say, yeah, this person definitely did it. It's certainly not enough evidence to get somebody convicted. Right. And in, that's in my opinion. And that's exactly where where I stand with this. Like right now when you and I are recording, we're on the record. So what we say like we we have to be somewhat professional. I mean, <laughs> to a degree. But when we're not recording, I mean, I, I don't I don't think I'm really like giving anything away here. We'll make inappropriate jokes <laughs> sometimes. You know? Yes, yeah, and like 
I would hate for that to be used as evidence against me, me because I don't mean any of it. Right. And you know that, so it's okay to say it to you. But but if some like third party heard it and didn't know that, then they'd be like, that guy's joking about putting somebody in the sewer. Like the only thing the only thing that I find suspicious, the only thing in that you've read that makes me think he might not be guilty is the fact that it sounds like they did a pretty thorough job of looking over his property mm-hmm. and they did not find any remains. Right. Which, granted, for those that don't know Sturgeon Bay, there's a lot of water there. I mean, this body could have been dumped in water. It's, yeah. it's in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of countryside around it. So it, he could have just disposed of the body in some other way. But that is weird to me. Like, I feel yeah. like... But then again, they also did his Michigan property, which... To me, I'm, I'm. I guess I don't. I'm not a killer, so I, I don't think like a killer. I would think, but do you really think somebody's going to kill somebody and then drag them all the way from Wisconsin to Michigan? Well, to, to get to, and then dispose of the body. So that's also very strange. It's it's strange, but I want to make this clear because I don't think I made this very clear during the way I told the story. They lived in trailer parks. When he moved to Michigan, he literally brought his house. Oh, yeah. So that makes it a lot easier then. Yeah. Yeah. That makes it a lot easier. That's interesting. Yeah. So oh. it's it wasn't just like he put her in the trunk of a car. Like if she was in the house, he could easily he move the move entire house. house. And, then, and then maybe because wherever he moved to might have been out in the middle of nowhere, he has a lot more freedom to dispose of the body the way he does. But still... It's very interesting that they didn't find anything because at one point in time, he said they checked like six locations in his... Did did I understand that right? The the dog reacted as though there were six spots that smelled funny. And so then they checked those spots. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And didn't find anything. Right. Yeah. So So that's... Okay. So yeah, it sounds like we're actually very much on the same page here because yeah, like I... I'm fairly confident this guy is guilty. Like it would, you would have to convince me that he's not guilty. Mm-hmm. If I was on that jury, I would not have convicted him based on the version of the story that I know, mm-hmm. because that's nobody is one thing. People have been convicted of murders with no body. Like you can get rid of a body. There's nothing here. There's no that, evidence. Yeah, you know, if you if you don't have blood you don't have a murder weapon you don't have a confession if you don't have anything other than he was the one who was going to profit and he's made a few inappropriate remarks to people that to me is not enough to show murder even though like again he probably did that doesn't overcome that you know that reasonable doubt threshold for me I still have a little bit of a doubt. Yeah. It's a very small one, but I have a little bit of a doubt there. I mean, you you still have to, I mean, you have to look at it from the perspective of, like, if I was being personal, I would say, yeah, this guy probably did it. He probably should go to jail. But at the same time, with what evidence they seem to propose in me understanding the way I think the legal system is supposed to work, this guy absolutely should not be in prison. Well, the legal system works the way the jury wants it to work. So if you're if you're on the the jury, then that's true. But then you would say he's not. But but if it's my understanding of correct, is they appeal this now it's going to go back to a judge, Mm -hmm. 
and the judge makes the decision on whether the appeal goes through or it or if he stays in jail. And I, I feel like the judge is going to say no. I, this guy's got to be let out because there's no evidence here. Well, maybe we'll see. I I feel like the judge would probably let it slide unless they've got a really clever argument. But we'll see. Really? Even with zero? I mean, because what you said there, there is some evidence, but the evidence that there they isn't, person, no, there isn't evidence. Yeah, the, it's the just evidence the, is really shaky evidence. It's like people saying things and like, oh, he said this to me and stuff like that. So yeah, the entire evidence is them interviewing people about comments that he made and how their relationship was. Uh, so it's like that is not to me so strong evidence. Why do you think on appeal the judge would not let him off? Because I don't know what the appeal would be. Because they have to have a reason, like to say in this case. I mean, could the be a appeal just be there's no evidence? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that isn't, like, how an appeals court works. An appeals court, like, you have to show an actual, like, legal error in how the trial was done. Okay. So, like, if they go back and they're like, okay, the investigators thought there was evidence, a preliminary hearing thought there was enough evidence, it went to trial and the jury thought there was enough evidence... The appeals court is probably not going to overrule that because it's already gone through, through the multiple, multiple you know, steps. And, and so they'd have is... to actually show that the prosecution did something inappropriate to, 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 to get, get it the, overturned. To get the conviction. They would have had to say some false information or something that they could present and say, they said this, but it's not true. Yeah. Like that's interesting. Yeah. Appeals court doesn't like go back and look over the whole thing and like re-decide the case. That isn't what an appeals court See, and is. I, okay. This is, like I said, based on my knowledge of the criminal system, I would feel like this would get, he would get out. But you're right. If that's the way it works, then I could see it possibly not getting out. But I do, I don't know. Because it is funny because you I want don't... To talk, you want to talk about an appeal, an appeals case to a trial. You want to come back for the next Fox City's Murder Mayhem no, episode okay. where we will talk about a murder case that got appealed. appealed and he got off? Hey, or, you have or, to wait for that, for that episode. episode. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, like with this, ep- with this one, I do thoroughly believe, based on what you read, it's got to be him. It's got to be him. Yeah. The other thing I find really interesting, though, about this is... What is the deal with this woman? Because she had the same <laughs> problem with every husband she had. Yeah, they were all saying kind of the same thing about her. Yeah, and and I just find that interesting. Like, was she? Because I know you said at one point, like, I don't know how much of this is her because some of the stuff they're saying is pretty yeah. crazy. But but they all said she was overbearing. She was control freak. She was running off with other men and stuff like that. And that I just find that yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, not not that it's okay to kill somebody over any of that stuff. She was sounds yeah, like she I don't was a really pretty wanna... terrible wife. <laughs> I know? don't want to like say bad things about her, you know, because she's dead, dead now. Like that's I don't want to say mean things about a murder victim. But yeah, there's there's something there. Like I don't I don't know. And to put to put some of this in context. I should be clear, like, if you don't know, it used to be harder to get a divorce than it is now. And so a lot of times you'd have to kind of, like, 
you'd have to fudge it a little bit. You'd have to be like, you know, they were cruel and inhumane. And like, if you actually looked at what they did, what they did was not cruel and inhumane. So that, but you'd have to say that to get the divorce. That and that—that's probably exactly it. Because those were the words that really, like, what was this woman doing to these people? But yeah, when maybe, you think of the word cruel, what she was doing is probably not what you think of as cruel. cruel. She would—they were just using that word, yeah, because it needs to be there. Otherwise, the divorce won't get approved. So right. yeah, okay, I can see that. I mean, as. She's clearly picking husbands that she does not get along with. That that well, part is true. Right. Every it, it seems like every one of her husbands was abusive. So Yeah. That's probably just a strong fact that she just didn't pick good guys, man. Yeah. <laughs> like or you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know, but yeah, definitely three husbands and three cases where if not physical abuse, at least verbal abuse going on there. Yeah, not not great, and I will I give credit to the prosecutors uh, in this case because the information about the previous husbands and relationships that actually comes out of the criminal complaint against Richard, and it has absolutely nothing to do with, with Richard at all. But they felt it was important to kind of lay out her background. To understand, you know, her. And I give them credit for that because that to me, like, reads as we're going to be totally honest about Carol here. Like, Carol is not, like, the the most innocent person in the world. world. She's had some problems. And so I, I give them credit for laying that out and right I wonder, from the beginning. I wonder if they did that because they, they assumed immediately once they started talking about everything that was going on in that marriage, the defense was immediately going to come back and say, well, it's kind of interesting. This has happened in every one of her marriages to kind of try and push the blame. Just like I kind of took it as, because I see this long pattern of it happening, I took it as she's got to be responsible for it in some way. But maybe she wasn't. Maybe just the verbiage they use during divorces make you think she's responsible, but it's not. It's just verbiage they have to use to get a divorce approved. Yeah, I think think this was really smart on the prosecutor to get kind of out ahead of it because even though the defense didn't end up putting anybody on the stand, that would have been a decent approach. Being like, here we go. Here's here's husband one and husband two. She's verbally abusive to them. She's always getting in fights. She's running around with other men. It's certainly possible that she fought with Richard and ran off with another man. This seems to be what she does. Mm-hmm. Credit to them for being like, we're not going to let this be a surprise. The defense we're, pulls out. We're, we're just going to put, put it out there. We're going to put it out there that, you know... This this was a shaky marriage from the get go. Like this is not like things went bad. This mm-hmm. is this is the relationships that she's in. Credit to them for for doing that because it's kind of a bold move to like it's it to, was, to paint your victim in a bad light. But they they wanted to be upfront about it, right? Well, and and it, it was a risk because it could blow up in their face. But but I think it's something they probably had to do mm-hmm. because. That the first thing they're gonna, the defense would have thrown right back at them is that history if they hadn't said it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So all right, 
Do you got anything else in this story? Are we ready to wrap this one up? We're ready to wrap this one up. I just, yeah, like, I I, I thought I thought I was going to come with the hot take, and you were just, like, already ahead of me on it. You're like, nope, I'm with you. <laughs> because cause I, I guarantee you the majority of the people following this case in the newspaper, their reaction is, like, Good. Screw you, Richard. You're gone. Mm-hmm. And you know, and not that I don't feel that way because again, I'm pretty confident he did it. But if I was on the jury, I wouldn't have convicted him. Yeah, I would have felt guilty I, about convicting. And him. I and I and if people want to send hate mail, you can send hate mail to Milwaukee Mafia <laughs> Gmail dot com. I mean, like, I don't know if I'm being clear enough about this that like I can feel both ways simultaneously. There's a there's a difference in my mind between like. A level of you've convinced me of guilt and a level of most likely. Most likely you're guilty, but I'm not going to put you behind bars because there's nothing to show that you did this. I mean, give us something. Yeah, I probably take more convincing than the average person about things, but that's unfortunately that's how it falls for this case, so... All right, then with that, we'll wrap this episode up. As always, we thank everybody for tuning in. We will be back in two weeks with another episode, and we will see you then. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.